Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. What a wonderful guest we have. And since we are sitting here on the campus of UCI, we are so thrilled to be the first to actually introduce the campus to a wonderful professor that was that will be teaching at our law school starting in 2009, and that is Professor Carrie Mengel Meadow, who is absolutely terrific and a hero of mine. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Carrie Meadow is Professor of Dispute Resolution and Civil Procedure and Director of the Hewlett Georgetown Program in Conflict Resolution and Legal Problem Solving at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., She's also chair of the Georgetown CPR Commission on Ethics and Standards in ADR. And of course, she is coming to UCI very soon to be a law professor there. And you can learn more about her at www.law.uci.edu faculty. But I can tell you a little bit more about her. She's the author of Dispute Processing and Conflict Resolution Theory and Practice, And she's co-author of several books, including What's Fair, Ethics for Negotiators, which I have sitting right in front of me. In fact, I want to use it to teach myself. And she has Dispute Resolution. She's a co-author. It's called Dispute Resolution Beyond the Adversarial Model. And another one, Negotiation Beyond the Adversarial Model. And Mediation Beyond the Adversarial Model. And she's editor of Mediation Theory, Policy, and Practice. And she's also the author of several other books and over a hundred articles on subjects ranging from dispute resolution, conflict resolution, negotiation, mediation, legal procedure, legal theory, ethics, feminine, feminist theory, law, and popular culture and legal education. She is just a prolific writer. She has received dozens of awards. I could go on and on about all the awards, and she has served as a mediator on very large publicized disputes, 
and she has taught at the law schools of Georgetown University, where she started in 1992, and she's been teaching there since then, but she's coming to UCI. She's also taught at Harvard University, Stanford University, the University of Pennsylvania, University of California in Los Angeles, Temple University, and the University of Toronto. Oh, she has done so many things, and she's currently serving, serving as co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Legal Education, the International Journal of Law in Context, and associate editor of the Negotiation Journal published by the Harvard Program on Negotiation, and I read that all the time. She holds a BA um, magnum cum laude from Bernard College, Columbia University, a JD from the University of Pennsylvania, where she also served on the Law Review. And she has, let's see, an LLD from Quinnipiac College of Law. She has so much more. I just can't go through it all, but I want to tell you, we are just so thrilled. Thank you for joining us all the way from the East Coast, Carrie. My pleasure, Mari. Well, we are so excited that you are coming to UCI because you are one of the top experts, and I know that the dean just was so thrilled that you would join us. And I'm thrilled to be joining the dean. Um, I've known Dean Erwin Chemerinsky for a long time when he was at USC and I was at UCLA, and I have enormous respect for Erwin. He's just going to be a terrific dean. Right, and he he uh, he was on our show too, so it's terrific. We're going to get as many of you guys as we can on there, especially you. What I especially am thrilled about in interviewing you is a longtime mediator myself, Uh, You're someone that I look up to, and I really have enjoyed your book, What's Fair, Ethics for Negotiation. I I love the articles you've put together, many of the people that I have actually had some training with myself. And so if you're interested in learning more about negotiation and really finding out what's fair and the ethics of negotiation, you can get What's Fair, Ethics for Negotiations. And this is by Carrie Menkel-Metal and Michael Wheeler. Terrific book. Let's talk about why settlements are, why people want settlements to be secret or confidential or private. Great question, Mari. In in many situations, um, people have disputes. They may start off by filing a lawsuit, and they may not realize that when they file a lawsuit, all the papers in the lawsuit can be made public. Often journalists uh, wait around in the public courthouse waiting for things to get filed so they can write articles about what happens. And although people may have a a private dispute between them, all of a sudden something may be on the front page of the papers. So um, often it turns out that people would prefer to keep some of their uh, private matters to themselves and not to be in a very public setting. That's one of the many reasons why people will sometimes choose mediation or a privately negotiated settlement so they can reach agreements without it becoming a very public event. It's a very beneficial benefit, really. I mean, it's really a top reason to choose negotiation or mediation, aside from the fact that you don't have all the aggravation and the costs of litigation, right? Right, exactly. And a second reason is, in my my many years of experience as a mediator, as a negotiator, it's also possible that parties can achieve more creative, flexible, and different solutions if not everybody in the world knows what they're doing, uh, which is not to say anybody's doing anything wrong. It's just that it's um, possible to craft more creative solutions if a particular thing doesn't become a precedent. And if things go to court and a judge decides, then it's public and it's a precedent, and there'll be a very strong pressure to solve similar problems in exactly the same way. So confidentiality allows people to arrive at personally tailored solutions, 
Um, and if you want an example, one example you know that's quite common where I mediate here in Washington is there could be uh, employment disputes, say, in the government between an employee and a manager, uh, and possibly someone could have a discrimination claim or some other legal claim. And uh, what's happened often is that rather than uh, going uh, full litigation where everybody's um, dirty laundry, as it were, might get exposed in the in the courthouse, and that could be both the employee and the manager, often people will arrive at a settlement in which someone agrees to be transferred to another office. Um, confidentiality and secrecy of that settlement uh, permits someone to start fresh, start new in another place, and to eliminate uh, long uh, battles of recrimination and arguments about the past. And it, pro it provides some flexibility. So that's one very concrete example of where confidenti confidentiality in, in settlements actually uh, winds up benefiting both parties um, and without any harm to anybody else. Right, right. So are there circumstances and situations when settlements should be made public or transparent? Uh, um, this is an issue of great dispute at the moment in the world. Um, there are a couple of states, and California was one of them for a while, where there were a, a lot of efforts to lobby for laws that said that certain lawsuits or disputes, particularly having to do with public health and safety, should never be subject to secret settlements. So if you can think that in Texas uh, is one of the states that actually has enacted such a law in their rules of civil procedure, and a couple of other states have done this. So imagine, if you would, um, the very famous case that caused Ralph Nader to write his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which had to do with the um, defects in design in the Ford Pinto. Many people are afraid that when there are damages uh, based on design defects, and you can also think about the recent dispute we had a few years ago with the Ford Explorer right. and the tires, that if we are allowed to settle privately, uh, big, big uh, products liability cases or big personal injury cases and torts, and if people could go off and settle those privately... Or drug issues. Or drug issues, yeah. exactly. Uh -huh. Then we won't know about defects in products or drugs. And so many people have lobbied for laws that would say in certain classes of cases there should never be a private settlement. Everyone has the right to know when someone's done something wrong and, and they shouldn't be able to settle those cases privately. Um, as I said, a, a few states, a handful of states, have passed such laws. In California, it wound up as uh, not not being passed because, um, although many consumer interests want those laws passed, uh, as you can imagine, many business interests would prefer to keep some cases uh, confidential. And in our state of California, for the most part, mediators um, often uh, are on the side of trying to keep, if not all, most cases uh, confidential for the, some of the reasons I said earlier. Right. It would seem that if you could get the company in their settlement to agree to make certain changes, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? If that exactly. was part of part of the deal, then it wouldn't need to be made public because then you would be preventing future injury. Exactly right. And, and yeah. Um, and that does happen, both in terms of product design and personal injury, and it's very common in employment disputes. Um, and it's common in, other, in, in lots of business practice cases that part of the settlement is that a business will agree to change its practices. Right. But that's going to depend on either the negotiators, if it's one-to-one, -one, yeah. or on the mediator being able to get the parties to get to that point. How hard is that? Um, it can be very hard, and it can be very easy. I've had both, both sorts of cases. Um, I have uh, mediated some very large national class actions, 
And you'd be surprised that sometimes things that are very bitterly fought in the courts, once the parties get into a mediation room, they're really quite anxious to put it behind them. Often, again, what a mediation can do, it enables the insurers to join the table. So we have all the parties, and the insurers are the ones that might be paying for any damages. And in situations like that, as you can imagine, of course, an insurer would want to be sure that they're insured, the businesses and the clients are going to change their practices so that they won't have to make any future payments. For right. Otherwise, they're going to exclude that. <laughs> exactly. So, so having multiple parties um, is another advantage of mediation and also uh, getting all the interested parties at the table sometimes actually makes changing things and working on future plans a little easier. And also, when, you, when you've got a great mediator like you, you're going to deflect the conflict and the adversarial nature and work toward problem solving. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing that, it, it isn't like win-lose, okay? So right. we're going to get you. We have to win, and the anger escalates. And then it, a lot of people would rather be right than happy or right than settle, you know? So right. at least if you're taking them out of that forum where they don't have to prove that they're right, but they can just problem solve, it's going to make it a lot easier for everybody. Exactly. And my, my favorite um, examples of that is in, in, in the uh, 1980s when I was teaching at UCLA in Los Angeles, I did a lot of mediating in what was then, and still is true, huge, huge cases involving asbestos with, with as you know, hundreds of thousands of people that who, who've been hurt by getting asbestos into their lungs. And right. those were very bitterly contested cases. And one of the most exciting uh, moments in my mediation career was working in a room with 20-something lawyers and parties and seeing that the clients, the parties, the businesses, and the insurance companies really wanted to solve the problem. So in a mediation context, they could push their lawyers aside. And they were still in the room, obviously. But they could push them aside because they were looking at trying to do the right thing uh, and also the bottom line, how to pay the claims that were that should be paid and to pay them in a fair way and then to and then to move on. So often um, in that kind of setting, you get people, um, you know, and many lawyers are problem solvers, too. But in a setting like that, you can enable the parties, the businesses, and the insurance uh, companies to to be able to talk as well. They don't all have to talk through their lawyers. Right. And you don't have to worry about the rules of evidence and cutting people off. And I think one of the nice things also is that when you're talking about having the parties in there who are injured, like the asbestos people who the people who've been injured by the asbestos and they're able to tell their story, yes. people start to look at them as human beings instead of dollar signs. Absolutely. And then they are they can have sympathy and empathy and it becomes a, a real issue rather than just dollars and cents. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I personally actually, if you know, if you'll let me tell just another example. Sure. From oh, yeah. We love examples. Um, I had a, the great honor, um, again, another mass, uh, mass tort, mass injury. Um, uh, older people in your audience, older meaning my age or older, will appreciate this. Um, in the um, in the 60s and 70s, um, the Robinson Company, which was the manufacturer, the Robbins Company, manufacturer of Robitussin cough drops, among other things, right. uh, marketed a product called the Dalcon Shield, which was one of the first devices for birth control um, at a time when there were still a lot of side effects of the birth control pill. So many women, uh, young women in college who became sexually active, started to use the Dalcon Shield. It later turned out to become to be seen as a, quite a defective product. It, it didn't totally protect against pregnancy, which was its purpose. It caused severe bleeding and pain, some cases, uh, very extreme cases, death and injury, infection, um, and infertility in a lot of cases. Uh, eventually, after a lot of litigation, um, the Dalcon Shield matter went into bankruptcy court in Virginia. 
And the remaining, there were literally hundreds of thousands of claimants of women all over the world, not just in the United States. And eventually, the bankruptcy court decided to use a uh, sort of a mediation arbitration, mostly arbitration system, private. Mm -hmm. um, and it's right, you know, it's exactly what you're talking about on your program. Uh, women who were afraid to come forward in court and tell stories about their past sexual history right. and be subjected to rather gruesome cross-examinations by people that were trying to show that it was their sexual promiscuity rather than their product that caused the injuries, um, came to these hearings, which were totally private. And I had the great honor of being the first arbitrator. There were about uh, 100 of us trained throughout the country to do this. But the program began with me in Los Angeles. And mm. I uh, arbitrated uh, hundreds of cases, both in Los Angeles and then also on the East Coast. Um, and the most touching thing was I would get letters after the hearings were over from women saying, I can't tell you how important it was to walk into the room and see that the judge, the arbitrator, was a woman. Yes. Uh, and that I could tell my story. So just as you described, the enormous um, ability to tell a story, to be seen as a human being, to have the catharsis of talking about the injury, and to talk to someone who they thought would at least appreciate some of what they'd been through. And not to have to say it in a public courtroom. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. and and the the group in there then becomes that intimate group that they can say what really happened and cry or whatever they need to do. And like you said, the catharsis and the letting go and right. the releasing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what an honor. What a great mm -hmm. thing you did. Yeah, that was, and it's interesting because um, I was so subject to a fair amount of criticism from many of my law professor friends who are more of the everything should be public and in the open courtroom school. And many people said to me, how can you sit there and privatize justice is the criticism of this. How can mm -hmm. you let people uh, tell their stories in private when everyone should know about this? And my response was just as you said. These, these are women who are choosing. They want some relief, both monetary and uh, emotional. They want to tell their stories. They don't want to do it in open court. In some cases, these were things that had happened to them 20 years ago before they were married, um, you know, and perhaps um, their husbands didn't know everything that had happened or their parents or whatever. And so, and like um, you said, the 60s, that was the flower children. That's exactly, my generation, too. <laughs> exactly. And it was, you know, the time of the beginning of the sexual revolution. And, um, and so there were lots of things people didn't want to share publicly, but that didn't mean they hadn't been harmed. And so for me, it was, you know, it was a very important experience for me to develop what I now teach, process pluralism, meaning that um, people who are injured should have the right to choose the kind of process they want. And some people want private processes. People who don't want, people who want to go public can. There's nothing right. stopping anybody from going into a courtroom and raising their claims publicly if that's what they want to do. Right. And, and for those of you listening who, who aren't lawyers and who have had things happen to you, you have the right to speak with your attorneys about your concerns about private issues, things that you want to keep private, that you want to engage in a mediation process or some kind of alternative dispute resolution. Never be fearful of asking your attorney about that. So what, what else should parties do if, if they want to keep their settlements private and secret? Well, you've just given them the most important <laughs> I advice. I gave one. <laughs> they need to tell whoever's helping them, and that could be a, a lawyer, it could be a psychologist, it could be a friend, it could be anyone who's helping them. They need to tell people, I, this is something I'd like to get relief, I'd like to get some recompense, is there some way I can do this privately? And mediation is one way to do that. Um, the next thing they want to do, if they're talking to someone who doesn't know as much as you or I, Mari, about mediation, is to be sure they get it in writing. Right. So when I mediate, I'm sure when you mediate too, I have a retainer agreement. That is yes. an agreement that I sign with the parties, and it specifically says 
um, everything that happens here in this mediation, or in some cases arbitration, will be kept confidential. And in California, that kind of agreement is protected by law. The yes. um, California Evidence Code says that when people agree to mediation, there is a statute, a formal law, that says mediation uh, communications are private, confidential, and cannot be disclosed. There are a few exceptions to that. Of course, when everybody comes to an agreement, yeah, when they come to an agreement, they can include in their agreement that this will be enforceable in a court of law. So then it it can be enforced to to make sure that everybody follows through. Absolutely. And there have been a few cases, and one of them is actually a pretty famous case from San Francisco in the Northern District of California. Um, Every once in a while, someone agrees to something in a private mediation, and then afterwards they're not happy about it, and they want to complain about the agreement. So some people have said, well, I was tired. I couldn't take my medication. I was very upset when I signed this. So it's like complaining that you signed a contract under... Yeah, buyer's remorse. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And in a few cases, the courts have had to look at whether a person really did fully consent freely to agree to something. And in a few cases in California, the courts have said, we need to find out what actually happened in the mediation. Now, the best courts, in my view, that have done this have done private hearings in the courts to find out just the conversation between the judge and the mediators and the parties to find out what happened. And that's called, uh, in formal Latin legal language, um, a hearing in camera, meaning it's in the judge's room. It's private. It's not with a court reporter. Right. And so it would not be something that would be totally open to the public public, but would be slightly more um, public. That is, the judge gets to hear what happens. So we're um, so people do have recourse, you know, if they go to a private mediation and they and they have some legally good claim for, you know, wanting to change their mind. um, There are situations in which they can contest it afterwards. But as you say, the best thing is for the parties to put in their agreement to mediate. And then again, when they finally reach an agreement, what they want to keep secret or confidential. Right. And and another important issue is that they should understand walking in that they have a right to discuss this with independent counsel with their advisors before they do sign anything so that they don't just go ahead and sign anything and have buyer's remorse that hopefully they'll have somebody discuss with them the pros and cons of signing now so that they really won't sign until they're really comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. We're speaking with... Professor Kerry Menkel-Meadow, who right now is still teaching at Georgetown University at the law school. She is incredibly wonderful and has been teaching mediation and dispute resolution for many years. And she is coming to UCI in 2009. When are you coming, Kerry? Well, I'll actually be around starting in January of 2009. Um, I'm going to be uh, uh, arriving. I'm doing a little teaching in Los Angeles in the spring. Um, As your listeners might want to know, we're... um, starting to take our first class of students next September. So this is a year of planning for us on the faculty, and I'll be around on campus starting in January meeting with my colleagues, planning the curriculum, admitting students, and hiring more faculty. So I'll be around starting January. Well, that is really wonderful. And you got to come back over and see us, too, because you'll be right on the campus. I will. Yes. I have an office already on campus. I know. I was over there. We actually interviewed uh, your boss, the dean, mm-hmm. over in his office when it was just boxes all over the place, but Mm -hmm. we had a lot of fun, so we can come over and see you there, too. Great. Now, what should people do if they want to find out what happened in a case which has been privately settled? Is there a way for them to open or make that uh, public? 
It can be done. It's pretty hard, but it has happened. Um, and again, it's sort of interesting. Uh, there's a very interesting case out of California, a public case, which uh, I teach, in which, and this for your listeners is probably pretty common, uh, a brand new condominium development. Uh, and after people moved in, uh, mold started to develop, and things were a little damp and moldy. And I, I can't remember now if there was uh, leaking from the ceiling, but a group of people who'd been damaged went into uh, a private mediation to try to settle the case. And they exchanged pictures and documents and reports of construction experts, and they achieved a settlement. And the settlement had a secrecy and confidentiality clause in it. So everyone said, we're going to settle this case, and nobody can find out what happened. And then um, about a year or so later, some other members of the condominium um, association started to have trouble a little bit later uh, in the in the uh, in the time period, and they tried similar to, problems. Yeah, and they so they tried to get the documents and pictures and expert reports of the earlier mediation. And the way you can do that, once again, you have to talk to a lawyer, and a lawyer can petition a, a court say, we, we know there's been this settlement and we would like to have access either to the agreement or to the documents themselves. Um, again, this will vary by state law. In the particular case that I'm referring to in California, the court held that the second group of people could not get a hold of the documents because they were protected by the statute I mentioned earlier. Every, all the documents produced in mediation were secret and confidential and could not be revealed in a subsequent action. But in other states and other cases, courts have said, if the only evidence of something wrong happening has been in a sealed or, or secret settlement, if you can prove that that's the only place you can get the evidence, we'll make the parties disclose it for purposes of your case. Mm. So the answer is, you know, go to, a, go to a lawyer who's a general civil litigation lawyer, and they will file a petition, and then it's up to the court. So it's it's rare, but it is possible that in the right circumstances, courts will say, if that's the only place that the evidence is, in this case it would have been pictures of the damage, um, you can get it. Because uh, in that case, what happened, of course, is the case got settled and all the repairs were made. So when the second group tried to argue about what had happened, there right. was no evidence anymore. Right. Okay. So they could. how about they couldn't subpoena the documents from the let's say, from the engineers or whoever did the repairs, oh, they couldn't that's subpoena? excellent point. So, um, yes, they could have, and that's why the engineers asked, you know, do we have to reveal this again? And um, that's a very important point, Mari, because it's important for the audience to understand. Just because some facts or documents or pictures or whatever are put into a mediation doesn't mean that they're protected from everybody uh, forever and for all time. Right. If someone has information um, and it hasn't otherwise been protected, a subpoena could make that person produce it in another environment. Absolutely. Right. And some mediation agreements, like I, in my mediation agreement, it says that anything that would be discoverable in court right. is not kept confidential exactly. if you end up in litigation exactly. or for any other reason. And the only things that are documents that will be kept confidential are ones that are specifically made for mediation that you agree to. Exactly right. And that's a very important point, too, because... Many people, knowing about confidentiality and mediation, and I have had some very sophisticated businesses come to me and say, 
I'm coming to mediation because I know if I give you these documents right. here, they're protected and they'll never be able to be released again. And that's right. not true. Right. As you put it, anything that's otherwise discoverable in a legal process cannot be protected by the mediation process. Right. So if you're listening to this, I mean, when you think about the mediation process, which I think is really the way to go, mm-hmm. um, you want to think about that anything, any offers that you make, any any ideas that you have that you kind of kick around, that can't be used against you in court in mediation. But the documents that are produced, that could be produced, could be used. So just think about that. You can make an offer and that won't be held against you or you won't be held to it if you don't agree with that offer. So exactly. that's important. Exactly. And that's one, I mean, it's a good point, Mari. That's one of the main reasons we offer. Another reason we offer people confidentiality in mediation. Right. We want people to have ideas, good ideas, bad ideas, crazy ideas, whatever. Brainstorm, we want to yeah. have what we call, you know, open brainstorming. Right. Let people think about anything and, and try not to judge too harshly because you never know. Someone's going to have an interesting idea. But as you put it, um, we don't want to. We don't want to make it uh, put it into a situation where someone's held to that, and once they um, suggest something, that they have to do it. Right. So the idea of confidentiality is to promote creative thinking. Right. Exactly. Because you might be willing to say something if you know it can never be used against you. Mm-hmm. And and the beauty of mediation also is that you, as the mediator, you as the neutral, you're you're the trusted third party because you can't be called to testify to hurt either side or if you have many sides to hurt any of any of the different parties which is a, a real beauty of the mediation, I think, as well. Absolutely. Most um, most states, as I described, California has it, and most states now have laws saying that the mediator serves and, and has sort of the same privileges as a judge uh, because, because the mediator is performing an important dispute resolution service for society. The mediator cannot be called to testify to testify against one of the parties. So right. the idea is parties will feel safe, you know, saying what's really important to them and what they need, and a mediator can't be called in to tattle on them in a public setting. Right. How about the rules? Are there different rules for private lawsuits? Um, there, there can be um, in, in some settings. Some kinds of cases and some kinds of matters by law are considered public. So to give you some examples, uh, in many, many states, and California is one of them, there are things called sunshine laws. And sunshine laws say that certain um, activities, particularly those which the government is involved in, have to be public. So, uh, for example, in California, the proceedings of um, city councils and other governing bodies um, have to be done publicly and transparently, and you can't go off and have those meetings in private. Right. There's a very wonderful, interesting, famous case in Florida where there was um, a a process for setting um, water or electricity utility prices, and subject to a Florida sunshine law, those kinds of proceedings by law were supposed to be public and transparent. Well, a very creative judge says there's a big dispute here, and I think we would all be better off if we took all the important people and let them sit down and try to mediate it in private. Mm-hmm. And just as the sunshine laws say that certain governmental functions should be out in the sunshine, both in Florida and California, right. um, there are also mediation laws, which was, we've just said, that protect confidentiality. So in Florida, there was a direct um, conflict between the open government sunshine law and the private creative problem-solving in secrecy law of mediation. And a judge had to decide how to reconcile those two laws. Uh-huh. So the parties were very creative. <laughs> uh, and what they decided to do was to kind of lower the um, the the publicity of it all, and rather than having the 
formal negotiation of the uh, top people in the utilities um, go off and do the negotiation. They had a they had a mediation and negotiation of some um, people that were not so high up in the utilities and therefore were not defined to be public officials under the law. Hmm. Um, and so as a result, they were able to come to an agreement. And once they had the agreement, then they went public as they had to under the Sunshine Law and disclosed what they had done and left it for you know objection and comment. But it was a very creative way to try to reconcile two very important uh, values for our society. On the one hand, uh, public processes and government, and on the other hand, allowing uh, creativity to come from more confidential and secret meetings in which people don't have to be you know, held to every last little thing that they say. Mm-hmm. What about class action lawsuits? How are they treated differently? Um, well, it, it's very interesting. In class action lawsuits, the court has to decide whether to certify something as a class or not. And once it's certified as a class, it may be slightly more public than if it were before class certification. There'll be be more hearings in court, for example, to decide whether there are class members and whether they're being adequately represented by the lawyers. But even in class actions, and I've worked on a couple of big ones, the judges will often suggest that the parties go off and uh, try to settle their cases. So in um, mass tort cases, some of your listeners will know not only of products liability or drug cases, but cases where bridges come down or hotels roofs fall in. That was the famous hotel case in St. Louis. Uh, there have been some nightclubs that have collapsed, Puerto Rico and New York. In those cases, there were class actions, many injured people suing the buildings, suing the insurers, suing the manufacturers of drugs. And even after class classes are formed, the actual settlement and negotiation will be done in private. Uh, so that creative ideas can come forward and they can figure out ways to to pay people just amounts of money. The difference is, once an agreement is reached in a class action, there is a public fairness hearing. Right. So a judge has to approve a settlement in a class action, and that hearing itself is a public one. Yes, and that settlement will be public, right? Yes. That Yeah, you can't keep that a, pri- a private settlement. Yes. Yeah. How about journalists or the media? Can they learn about these private uh, or legal settlements? Yeah. That another um, very interesting uh, case. This one um, that I remember. Uh, one one being out of Ohio, uh, in which and the Ohio courts have been very creative in using some of these dispute resolution processes. So there was a wonderful federal judge in Ohio who said, "We've got a lot of cases and they're taking up a lot of time and we're wasting our jurors' time." So. Um, I'm going to try to do uh, a program in which we get, rather than a jury of 12, we'll get a smaller jury, jury of six, and we'll let the parties present their cases in a shortened form, so not a full trial. Mm-hmm. And these were called summary jury trials. And we'll just have the lawyers sort of testify, not the lawyers testify, the lawyers describe the case, get a little bit of testimony, and then we'll ask the jurors what they think. Mm-hmm. So the jurors weren't doing a verdict, but they were advising the parties about what they might do if they were deliberating. And as a result, the parties got some feedback on how good their cases were. Well, those proceedings were treated as both mediations and negotiations and were done in private. And in one of those cases, some journalists said, these cases are pretty important and I want access to them. And so the interesting question for the court to decide, was this more like a trial, which is public, or more like a negotiation or mediation session, which is totally private. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, uh, and as you can imagine, the journalists were making uh, arguments, First Amendment, right to access, right to speech, right to find out what's going on. 
And in that case, the courts held that these were private negotiation sessions. They were not formal court proceedings. People weren't taking oaths. Um, and they said, people go around and settle cases privately all the time outside of courthouses. We're just facilitating their settlement. As long as this is a voluntary process and not a compulsory one, it's not an official court trial. And so these can be made private. Um, not everybody agrees with that ruling. There's been a lot of uh, legal commentary on it, but it just shows you how uh, we're developing variations on these creative processes, and some of them are public and some of them are private, and some of them have elements of both public and private. And wouldn't it help to make it more clear by having agreements of all the parties before you entered into one of those kinds a- of... Absolutely. So you know and I know since we do this that the best way to deal with these questions is to try to think about them before you actually enter into the procedure itself. To try right, and to everybody specify. agree ahead of time and sign right. an agreement. We agree that no matter what happens, this is going to be confidential or this is not going to have any no enforcement value or anything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But how about, um, you know, sealing of cases? We had a, a case in California in a family law case recently mm-hmm. where this was not a mediation, but this was, a, a, in effect, a, a case in which the parties wanted to keep certain financial information mm-hmm. sealed and the court wouldn't let them. Why don't you talk about that issue mm-hmm. as opposed to a mediation versus litigation and trying to seal documents? Mm-hmm. Well, in Every state of the union and in the federal rules, um, the rules of civil procedure um, permit any party to ask the court to seal records. Um, And they can do that because of privacy concerns. So you're describing a very common one in family law. And there you are in Southern California. I used to do these cases in L.A. with, um, you know, rich movie stars who, who didn't want the media to to find out how much money they had. Right. So they would ask for sealed proceedings. These are... Um, discretionary with the judge. The, the people have to show a good reason for why something should be sealed. Another reason, so sometimes they're granted and sometimes they're not, and they're totally discretionary. They're up to the judge. Um, and people can then appeal to the appellate court and say, I disagree with the judge's decision. Uh, and that would be a question for appealing. But essentially, uh, you have to show good reasons, and then it's up to the judge to decide. And it's uh, a First Amendment issue, too, because in that particular case in California, the journalists wanted to, to yes. know. Okay, exactly. so that was a media issue. Exactly, um, and that can and media journalists can always be a third party um, at your at your uh, lawsuit or your mediation. But I have seen cases um, sealed in, in two very important um, kinds of cases. In addition, in addition to family law, they have been done in family law. But another one is trade secrets. So imagine disputes uh, between Microsoft and Yahoo or any of the other big Silicon Valley uh, companies, lots of this litigation in California. An employee leaves the employment of one of the big computer companies and goes someplace else, um, and they're accused of taking with them a source code or some computer language. And someone will say, well, they've taken some of our trade secrets or our customer lists. And we're going to have a lawsuit about that, but we don't want the information about how these com- computer programs um, have been developed to be aired in a public court. So sealing has become relatively common in trade secret sorts of cases. And another category of case sometimes has to do with health. So as you can imagine, there's been litigation about people giving each other HIV AIDS, Mm-hmm. Um, both in criminal and civil uh, situations, and in sometimes in those cases, in order to protect the confidentiality of people who have various illnesses or diseases when they may or may not be relevant to other people, courts have agreed to seal parts of cases. 
sometimes. Right. right. I just was an expert on a case in which there was a lot of private information filed by one of the attorneys about the um, about the defendants, and it became a big brouhaha, but there were things in there like social security numbers and financial account numbers. And uh, they finally, they did agree to seal the documents. But in my view, that really wasn't even enough because even if if something is sealed, even if a case is Mm -hmm. sealed, there are people within the court system who still have access. Absolutely. So, you know, my view is you you need to redact. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, in another place, since you mentioned that very important for your listeners to know about, um, it's very common for kids who get into trouble, and I used to represent kids many years ago. Uh, Kids get into a little bit of trouble. They have a, a, you know, a a minor criminal misdemeanor or some juvenile uh, criminal activity. And in many states, if you're underage, those juvenile records are sealed. And right. if you don't commit another crime or another infraction, they're supposed to be destroyed. And they're not supposed to come up in your record uh, later on. But as you put it, Mari, it's, it's absolutely true that court personnel will sometimes have access to these records. And there certainly have been cases in which court personnel or other people have leaked some of this information um, to the press and, or, to, or to somebody else. And so sealing sometime, sometimes isn't adequate. That goes back to the whole reason why people should mediate, because some of those things don't ever even have to be filed with a court or sealed. They're just kept confidential. And obviously, as the mediator, you have a duty to keep it confidential. The parties are going to keep it confidential, so you don't have to worry about other third parties. Right. And especially in the example I just gave, um, there's lots of um, wonderful programs going on around the United States in what we're now calling victim-offender mediation or restorative justice. So for kids, for juveniles in particular, or for very, very um, not-so-serious misdemeanors, small burglaries, those sorts of things, bringing victims and offenders together in a safe environment where um, someone gets to pay some restitution and to say they're sorry and to apologize uh, and to actually sort of heal the breach of what went wrong, but not having to put somebody in jail and ruin their life. Exactly. Um, and, and so this is a, that is the sort of um, the mediation on the criminal side. And it's a, a, a growing movement throughout the United States and actually all parts of the world. Yes. And, and it is helpful because you, once you have a public record that you've been convicted of something, that's going to go with you the rest of your life. Right. And it's, exactly. and it's going to proliferate. And now everybody in the world is getting background checks on you, whether you have right. access to sensitive information or not. Right, right. We're speaking, and we are so thrilled to have her all the way from across the country at Georgetown University. We're speaking with Professor Carrie Menkel-Meadow, who is a law professor at Georgetown University, but she is coming and going to be in our wonderful UCI campus on uh, in January, and she's going to get everybody ready for the new law school classes that are beginning in 2009. And uh, she is an expert at alternative dispute resolution, wonderful books that she's written. I have one right in front of me. I just want to give you a little plug on this one. This is by Carrie Menkel Meadow, and she did this in, uh, she co-edited this with Michael Wheeler. It's called What's Fair? Ethics for Negotiation. And it's a publication of the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, which I was so thrilled that I could be with Bill Urey and Roger Fisher and take training with them. So I I am just and I notice you have things in here by, uh, let's see, a lot of them, a lot of the different things here by uh, different professors that I have worked with and and met in the past. And it's really wonderful. I want to just read the praises here. One of them says here, um, The assumption has long been made that even the most 
unethical of us will cheat during a negotiation. Isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. This book, What's Fair, finally pulls together some of the most important papers dealing with this assumption into a single badly needed volume. This is a book that should be read by everyone who negotiates or who cares about ethics, which is to say all of us. And that was by David M. Mesnick, and he is a professor at Northwestern University. Isn't that true when we're negotiation? You know, as a mediator, I know you can pick up, because we've done it long enough, we can pick up on the subtleties of when someone is not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to be neutral, so we can't get into you know, making judgments about it, but we have to ask enough good questions, open-ended questions that they're going to kind of reveal for the other side right. what is really going on. So that's, uh, it, it's tough. Yep. I'll, I'll reveal here on the, on the air one of my big secrets, but not so secret because I teach all my students this. In, in that book that you so nicely um, <laughs> reported on for me, uh, we talk about a concept called planting a trust landmine in a negotiation. So mediators can do this too, and anybody who's negotiating with somebody else. Imagine that you're negotiating with someone and you can't figure out whether you can trust them or not. So what you should do is use an old trick that's used by lawyers in trials, and that is ask a question you already know the answer to. <laughs> yep. I do it all the time in mediation and negotiation. Um, what you're doing is finding out whether the person at the other side of the table is being honest with you. And it's not foolproof because someone could... You know, be honest in one situation and answer the question honestly and then lie about the next one. But it, it does, it's a, it's a really nice little test um, to see whether the person on the other side of the table can be trusted. And I might just add that in this, in this day of the Internet and Google, it's very, very easy to investigate a lot of information that people give you. In everyday life, in transactions, buying real estate, buying cars, you can look stuff up. You can see how much things are worth. Um, and so it's very easy to do a lot of investigation on your own, and mediators do this too, and then ask somebody something you already know the answer to. Um, and that'll give you some tip, not a totally foolproof one, but it'll give you some tip about whether you can trust the person. Right. And and the other side of that is in the position that I sit as people calling me for as victims of identity theft, mm -hmm. whether it's cyber identity theft, you have to take what you read with a grain of salt yes. because I've had people who have been victims of cyber identity theft that I ended up mediating with the person who committed the cyber identity theft. For example, there was a woman who called me in Orange County who um, was on a listserv with people, and suddenly there was someone coming in with an email pretending to be her husband wow. and discrediting her. So we were able to find out who that person was, but instead of making it public, we mediated it. Mm -hmm. And that person apologized. That person ended up making restitution to her for that. But you don't know what you can really trust online. Right. You don't know what you can trust if you're doing a search on somebody, social networking, or if somebody is, uh, in fact, there was a woman on Fox News was just talking recently. What's her name? Megan Kelly. That's mm -hmm. her name. She was just talking about that somebody had put up a Facebook about her, you know, wow. with her picture, pretending to be her and saying all these things that were not her. So on one hand, Carrie, you're absolutely right. You can find out a lot of research. Like if we go, we can find out about you. We can go to mm -hmm. the Georgetown University faculty website and find out about you or UCI. That's going to be pretty credible. But something else that maybe somebody who you didn't give as good a grade as they would have wanted, maybe exactly. they put up something on a MySpace 
line that with your picture saying you said certain things that could discredit you. Well, I'll tell you something that's already <laughs> happened to me. So um, I'll say two things about that. One is uh, one of one of the books you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've written a lot of textbooks for law students in this field. Um, and if you go to Amazon.com, you'll find that, you know, as you all know, people can review textbooks. And there's one review of one of my textbooks that's uh, pretty negative. The other ones are all very positive. Most of my students love my book. Um, but there's one that's pretty nasty and negative and says, this is a terrible book, and I hope other professors don't assign it. And it's pretty clearly a student either in my own course, who I don't know, or someone else's student who used my book who didn't get a good grade and is very unhappy. Right. So that, that's can... bad enough, but people can say, oh, that person's an idiot. It's just right. like when I, you know, I read a review of a movie, and then I go and I love it. I go, I don't even want to look at those because, you know, they have a different sense of values than I do. Exactly. But something, what if someone would put up a MySpace with your picture? picture. Yeah. You know, and I've had people call me with those kinds of things. In fact, Dan Solove, who you may know is in yeah. your neck of the woods, wrote yep, a wonderful absolutely. book. I love Dan. And we've yeah. had him on the show a couple of times, but he wrote a book recently called The Future of Reputation on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And that's where he shows some of those kinds of issues that so you got to be Absolutely. Careful on there, but let's actually what quickly while you're mentioning Don, Don, uh, Dan Soloff, I I was a guest commentator on his blog um, some months ago, uh, and I learned the lesson of what you're trying to tell people <laughs> about on your program, which was I'd been you know I'm a professor, I've written books, so I have uh, you know a quasi public life, but I'm a pretty private person. And once I started blogging, um, all of a sudden I got all kinds of emails from people all over the world. Uh, mm. And you realize how quickly you become a public figure and you can't control what people say about you. And, and as you put it, sometimes uh, attributing things to you that you never said or pretending to be you. I know. Isn't it scary? That's why I haven't started a blog because yep. I, I put something once on a blog and it was misunderstood. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. Yep. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I'm too scared. Yep. I'd rather do my radio show. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And actually, for your, you know, for your listeners, I'm sure you tell them this all the time, it's important for people to realize that the other side of that is the whole phishing expedition. When you get an email and someone says, you know, we need more information about your account or we need more information about you, don't respond to those. Oh, yeah. We've people talked are doing about them so that they can become you and steal your name and identity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we, we've talked about a lot of those kinds of issues. And the same thing with somebody calling you on the phone, same kind yeah, of thing. But exactly. but the kind of privacy, this is one of the things that it touches my heart very closely because I am such a proponent of mediation because of the privacy issues, because of the ability to protect those feelings and thoughts that you can problem solve and resolve a dispute and, and even able to air some of the feelings that you can't air in court because you'd look like an idiot, mm -hmm. exactly. you know, so the, those are really important things too. Yep. Now let's get back to talking about mediation. Can the information that the parties exchange during a lawsuit, um, you know, if they're in mediation, that can be made public, right? We talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, and generally in a mediation, if there are documents created especially for the mediation, in general, those are protected and will be kept confidential. But as you put it, um, information that's discoverable in a, in a lawsuit or anything that is in fact turned over in a lawsuit can be made public. Not so easy anymore. When I started being a lawyer 30 years ago, all of those documents in discovery were actually filed with the court, and they were totally public. Right. These days, even in a lawsuit, parties are just exchanging information between the parties. 
So it's not quite totally public. I'd say it's halfway in between a mediation where things are pretty private and a full public hearing at a trial where they're totally public. Discovery sort of in the middle. Right. So what about the difference between a private mediation and court-ordered mediation? A lot of people don't understand really what the difference is. Really important. So private mediation is uh, done very often in lots of environments, but very commonly in a divorce. People just agree to go off even before they filed any lawsuit um, and say, let's go off and find a mediator like Mari or Carrie or somebody and talk to them about trying to settle our dispute. Totally voluntary. Both parties agree. They find a mediator. They sign a retainer agreement uh, or a contract to agree to mediate, and they can make for themselves any rules they want about how to conduct the mediation, as long as it's not otherwise unlawful. And they agree. And they agree. Right. Increasingly, because mediation is such a terrific process and offers the parties creative solutions and very good processes, many, many courts in the country, indeed all of the federal courts in the country, uh, will now recommend to parties that they might want to try one of these processes. And in some cases, and in many states now, people will actually be ordered by the court to go try mediation first. If any of your listeners have been to small claims court in California, they will be asked before they get to go to a hearing, have you mediated? And um, it's a very controversial practice because uh, some people may have heard the term, it's almost an oxymoron, mandatory mediation. Right, right. We, the court, are it's making you It's a voluntary you go to process, but, but you have to go. Right. So what's mandatory is you have to show up, and you have to try in good faith to negotiate and settle the case. What's not mandatory is that you do not have to reach an agreement. Right. Mediation still requires a voluntary agreement. So if you don't want to agree, you can still leave and go off to have your trial if you want. But it's a very confusing term, and Many purists, people who really believe in the voluntariness of mediation, think that mandatory mediation is giving the rest of mediation a bad name. Right. The problem is, is a lot of people don't realize what a great process it is. So if you don't get kind of forced to at least go and sit there, you don't get to learn about the great. It's like with my kids when they were little. I said, just try it. If you don't like it, you never have to eat it again. Right. Well, your kids and everyone else might appreciate that. In fact, a very formal study was done of this in Ohio. Yeah. And they found that in courts where lawyers and parties were told they had to go to mediation, that even if the case, that particular case did not settle, Both the parties and the lawyers were much more likely to do mediation in the future. So mandatory mediation has an educative function. It educates people about what's good about it. And even people who think they don't want to do it, once they get inside of it, they say, hmm, this is a pretty interesting thing. Maybe it won't work in this case, but I think I'll try it in another case. Right. And, you know, they, we had, I remember when we put together some issues, and, and you probably are aware of this, too, when you were in California, is that uh, with real estate, if you have a real estate dispute, you are required to try mediation first. And if you refuse to do so, it can be held against you later in terms of uh, attorney's fees. Absolutely. And so that's that's another beauty. And then we do have mandatory mediation for child custody and mm-hmm. family law. Mm-hmm. And again, you're not required, like you said, you're not required to settle, but you're required to at least try it. Right. And in family law, uh, in the conciliation courts, the idea is, you know, for people to realize that um, in many cases, you may be getting divorced, but you're still the parents of your children. And the idea is to try to work out some solution that's best for the kids and best for you and to try to resolve it as amicably as possible to reduce the conflict for the future family. Yeah. 
Let's talk just for a couple minutes because Lloyd says we only have about three minutes left. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the benefits of pre-lawsuit negotiation and mediation before anything gets filed. Why is that such an important thing to try? It's really important because once some lawyer gets involved and files a complaint or an answer, and I was a litigator, I did lots of this in the early part of my career, then the tensions, the conflicts get heightened. And the one thing we know from research in this field is it is much, much um, easier to escalate than to de-escalate a dispute. Right. So you want to start to resolve it before you get into the courtroom and everyone turns adversarial and conflictual and nasty because it's pretty hard to take it down. But you can always take it up if it's not working. And by the up, I mean the level of conflict. So starting before things get hardened, before the parties think of themselves as plaintiffs and defendants and petitioners and respondents and opponents, better to sit down and think instead we're partners or counterparts. Can we try to work this out? Right. We're problem solving. And, you know, there's another thing that that becomes a real hot issue for privacy is, for example, in an employment dispute. If you're an employee and you file a lawsuit before you try to do anything, you may never get another job again because right. those lawsuits are going to be public record and somebody's going to go on. Like you said, you know, you can you can go online and find out about your potential employee. If you find out that somebody has sued their employer before, you don't want to touch them with a 10 foot pole. Exactly. And the same thing's true in medical malpractice. Yes. Um, doctors see which or which lawyer malpractice them and then they refuse to treat them. Right. Or lawyer malpractice. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, do you want to just, Lloyd says it's time. Do you want to just leave us with anything? Um, First of all, we're so excited you're coming and everybody's going to get to meet you here on campus. They're going to be thrilled and want to take your class at the law school. Want to leave us with anything about uh, what what people should do when they're considering um, any kind of dispute, how to resolve it? Well, a couple things I'll just say very quickly. When I started as a young lawyer, there was a wonderful sign in a federal judge's office, which I've never forgotten, which said, to sue is human, to settle divine. <laughs> I love it. That is <laughs> and so And it's perfect. a way to tell people, we all get angry, we all have conflicts, um, and it's sometimes better to sit down and try to figure out how can we craft our own solution to this problem before some lawyers or judges or people outside of our lives settle it for us. Right. And we can get your book, What's Fair, and that's really important, What's Fair Ethics for Negotiators, and that is by Carrie Menkel Meadow and Michael Wheeler. That is a terrific book with lots of great articles to help you to be an ethical negotiator, because if, if you ever found out to be unethical or a, lo- a liar, <laughs> I said lawyer, right. <laughs> a liar, then nobody's going to trust you again, and you're going to have a lot of problems trying to get anything settled. Right. So we need to get your book as well. Right. If the best thing you can have as a negotiator is a good reputation. Yeah. Well, isn't that that's in anything? If we have a bad reputation, it goes with us. And that's now even on the Internet. Right. Well, thank you, Carrie Menkel Meadow. We are so excited that you're going to be a professor of law right here at UCI. And we thank you for joining us. And thank you, Mari. It's been a great pleasure. And I look forward to meeting you in person. Yeah, we're going to do lunch. Thank you so great. much. Take okay. Care. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Thank you for joining us. And please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can listen to our archived interviews, download our podcasts, see our upcoming guests, and write us emails. And thank you, Lloyd. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.